You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your, your blessings and your mercies to us. Lord, thank you for the worship that you have given us this morning to delight and in, and enjoy you, to learn and hear from your word. Thank you for the sermon that we heard so today. We're so grateful. And Lord, I pray that you will bless us here as we dive into this book together, that you'll give us wisdom and that you'll give us insight into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the idea today is to think through Song of Solomon a bit and and to do so with more of an aerial view. All right, so I want to give you a, a 10,000 foot view of the, of the book of Song of Solomon um, and talk a little bit about the book and maybe provide for you some interpretive handles for how to engage and enter into the book. Um, I, I will be the first to confess I don't have my mind all around this book, frankly. Um, you know, I joke with people that I... I caught one of my teenage sons one time reading Song of Solomon late at night. I'm like, you know, I guess you know, it could have been worse. Um, so uh, Song of Solomon is unlike, and I want to leave some time for questions here as well. Song of Solomon's unlike any, anything else in the Bible. <laughs> it is a wild book. Um, and its presence in Scripture raises all kinds of questions. So think about the book of Song of Solomon, right? So I, I'm just going to read a few verses from... Um, from the from the first chapter, the song of songs, which is Solomon's, let let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers, and then you have a chorus kind of comes in and sings. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly. Do they love you? Um, then you go into verse 5, and now it's the f- female speaking. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze on me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. So this is someone not from the gentrified class. This is a young woman from the working class. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keepers of the vineyard. And it's a, so you go through all this. And then, then he comes back in verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, f- uh, following the tracks of the flock and pasture your, your young goats besides the shepherd's tents. I mean, the, the, these aren't making Hallmark cards. You know, like the, 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 there's a sense in which the imagery that's being used is bizarre. And it's unlike anything else in the Bible. And because that's the case, it raises all kinds of questions. And what kind of questions does it raise? Similar questions to the book of Esther. I mean, es- Esther is a, is a book that has perplexed both the synagogue and the church for a long time. Why would a book like Esther be in our canon? There's no mention of God. There's some dubious aspects in the book of Esther. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that there are facets of what Esther does to, to work the scene in such a way for, uh, that, that's, that's a little... Rated R, I'm not sure how else to say it. And then you get into the Song of Solomon, and it raises uh, other questions as well, because Song of Solomon's not overtly religious. That's what I'm trying to get to. Um, so many of the themes that we find out throughout all the Old Testament. So if, you, if I were to kind of press you into a corner or give you a blank sheet of paper and say, write, write out for me some, some of the major themes of the Old Testament. I think you could say, well, God is creator. 
um, God is Redeemer of Israel. The covenant formula, I will be your God and you will be my people. The nature of God's claim on His people to be a royal priesthood to the, to the whole of the, of, of the whole world, um, which is in the giving of the Decalogue. Um, wisdom might come into play. I mean, there, there are all kinds of themes that you might draw out from the Bible, and, and they're, all, they're painfully absent from Song of Solomon. Um, no Yahweh, no Jehovah, no the Lord, no history of Israel, no Sinai, no Torah, no temple in here at all. So because of this, the Song of Solomon, now this is, I love this about the history of the church and the synagogue too. Because Song of Solomon is not self-evident when it comes to why in the world is this thing here? And what are we to do with it? Because of that, it is perhaps one of, think about this, if not the most commented upon book in the Old Testament. I mean, it's almost as if when you look, especially in the medieval period, like before the Reformation and back, it's almost as if the great theologians of the church feel like they have to do their great... Aquinas is an example of this. Writes the Summa, um, gets six months away from finishing the Summa, which is one of the greatest theological works ever written in the, in the history of the Western world. He has some beatific vision, if you remember this, and then he stops, so he doesn't write anymore. Um, but right toward the end of his writing process, you know what one of the last things Aquinas did? He wrote a commentary on Song of Solomon. Um, Jonathan Edwards writes a commentary on Song of Solomon. It's as if the pastors and theologians and thinkers of the church feel like they've got to do justice to this book because there's something about this book when it's not because it's not self-evident. I don't really know what it's doing that demands us to give detailed attention to it. Um, I, I, I wasn't really planning to talk about this, but I, I, let me let me say this on the side. I find this to be one of the more fascinating features of the interpretive, the biblical interpretive instincts of the early church. Now, now I, can, I can hand you readings of origin on Noah's Ark or Augustine on the prodigal son, and you will read those and they will feel like foreign literature. I mean, it's just not a kind of approach that you'd be used to with reading the Bible. Um, for example, I mean, uh, you know, Augustine's going to start talking about the ring, you know, with the prodigal son meaning this and, and the fatted calf meaning this. And so all these images become... They become metaphors or something else, a kind of allegorical reading. I'm not against all of that, by the way. But they become, and it's strange because that's not the way in which we typically read texts. So I'm, I'm not saying there aren't curious facets of the, of the interpretive instincts of the early church, but one facet that I really admire about the early church, and I'll talk about origin here in a second as well, is when they got to the hard parts of the Bible, they dug deep. When we, and I'll say this by myself too, when we get to the hard parts of the Bible, I skip it, right? You know, so what, 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 there's so much good stuff. Remember Mark Twain's famous? Like not, not the part that I don't, don't understand that bothers me, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me, right? Um, so there's so much other material that I just kind of jump over that. A classic example of this is the really, really bizarre text in Exodus chapter 4. I mean, here you have the burning bush in Exodus 3. You move to Exodus 4. God again tells Moses, you're going to go and, and deliver my people. And Aaron's going to go along with you. And then there's these two verses that show up in the middle of Exodus 4 that appear like they're out of nowhere. And on the way, the Lord tried to kill Moses. You read this? The craziness. But... Um, <laughs> But Zipporah, his wife, I guess was carrying a traveling circumcision kit. They circumcised their son Gershom on the spot, spread some of the blood on Moses, and the angel of death was averted. 
Then the next verse says, and then Aaron met him, and they went on, you're like, what, what the Hades just happened? Um, and, and you have these just two verses that are there, and you move on. And, and again, my instinct would be, you know, well, let's label that enigmatic. That's weird. We're going to kind of jump over it. Not the minds of the early church. Origin. He's going to dive deep. Those verses are strange. They're not self-evident. They must be an invitation into the mysteries of God. That's how they would think of that. There must be something here that's an invitation to the very mysteries of God here if we're not able to make sense immediately about what's going on. Uh, Maximus, the confessor, writes a whole tractate on those few, couple few verses there about the nature of virtue and vice and how that might shape our understanding of what's going on in Exodus 4. I'm not necessarily persuaded by Maximus' reading of Exodus 4, but the point is he dove deep to try to wrestle with what those verses are because every verse matters. I mean, we're all... I, I, I don't know all of you, but I imagine most of you here are evangelical types like me where you really believe and, and confess the inspiration and truth-telling character of the Bible from Genesis 1-1, as one of my colleagues would say, all the way to the maps right in the back. So all, all of it. I mean, it, it, it all matters. Now, of course, we order certain things according to principles of a sort of theological centrality. And I get that. I mean, Romans... For our, our way of sort of making sense of God's ways in the world is, 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 a, is a book that we'd probably place above Esther. I mean, I think we make some differentiations. I get that. But the point of it is all of it matters and all of it plays a role in theological and pastoral sense making in the world. And Song of Solomon is one of these books. Song of Solomon is, can I just give it to you straightforward? It's erotic love lyric poetry. It's not complicated. Um... I mean, one could argue, depending on your aesthetic sensibility, it's not even great. I mean, this is, this is not, um, uh, uh, um, oh, what's the sonnet by Shakespeare that I'm forgetting right now? Um, love is not love when it alteration finds. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not all that. You've got a lot of sheep imagery, goats. You're, you're, you know, your, your neck is like a Tower of David. I'll try that this afternoon with Naomi, see how that goes. Um, I mean, there's a lot of Have you ever seen that, by the way, online? Where someone actually took, made an artistic rendition of all the images here that are used. Um, your teeth are like a flock of goats. And they actually, put, I mean, do a Google search on that, right? I mean, so I'm not even saying that it's great poetry. It's lyric poetry. It's simple poetry. Simple subjects, simple voices, not complicated, not complex. All centered around the, the character of young erotic love that tends to focus on the perspective of the female. That's interesting. So that's the nature of this book. Um, so because it's so enigmatic, it's one of the most commented upon biblical books in the Old Testament, it demands some kind of explanation. Is there a hidden religious or theological message here that needs to be found, and how is it to be found? Let me talk about the title of the book for a second. Seer Hasarim, that's what it is in Hebrew. Song of the Songs. And often that im ending, do you hear that? Hasarim ending. That im ending in Hebrew is a plural. Here's another im ending that you'll know. Um, Elohim, right? So you have that plural ending. And plurals are often used in Hebrew to define, to, to indicate something that's majestic or, or glorious. So, so in other words, if even saying Elohim is a plural, is not necessarily talking about the plurality of God, but the exalted and majestic character of God. So here what you have is the song 
of the greatest songs in the sense that the subject matter that's being dealt with here, even in the title, is a superlative. Something special is going on here. Uh, think about the book of Ecclesiastes we talked about two weeks ago, I think. Or was that last week? Vanity of vanities. Hevel hachevelim. Right? So you have that singular followed by, by the plural. And then because of that vanity of vanities, um, sir hasarim, here's another phrase that goes like this in the Old Testament. Kadesh kadashim. The holy of holies. Right? So the fact that you have this particular phraseology even in the title, even the title might pique someone's interest who knows Hebrew to say, maybe there is something religious going on here. Hevel Hevelim, Kadash Kadashim, Shir Hasharim. There's a pattern of language here that suggests that something special is going on. Rabbi Akiba from the first century AD. Now this is interesting refers to the Song of Songs as the most sacred of all the texts in the Old Testament. Is that fascinating? He refers to it as the Holy of Holies. So, I mean, for me, that's interesting. So, so what, what would make a book that, I mean... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say, let me set this aside. Because I know that some of you have been to seminars before where Song of Solomon has been presented, and I'm okay with this, by the way. As you know, sort of 12 steps to a better sex life and marriage or something like that. Um, and that's okay. But I'm just saying that the way in which the church and the synagogue have read this book for a long time suggests that th those metaphors are inviting you into something deeper, something a little bit more transcendent than just human sexuality alone. So can we talk a little bit about the nature of the Song of Solomons? What, what is this material? Um, and the genre question of Song of Solomon, what is this stuff that we have here? It's perhaps one of the most difficult riddles that we have to solve. What, what are these poems? The same Rabbi Akaba that I just mentioned before got quite fussy on the misuse of these poems or the misunderstanding of them as a different genre. Listen to what he says in the Mishnah. Whoever trills the Song of Songs in banquet halls and treats it like mere lyric has no share in the world to come. In other words, I think what Rabbi Akaba is saying is if, if you're going to a wedding reception and you're hearing people sort of la-di-da these tunes you know, at the, at the wedding reception, they've misunderstood these things and they're bringing a curse upon themselves. Now, I would, I would tell Rabbi, if you were here, I'd say, calm, calm down, Rabbi. But, but the point is, you get the sense where the stakes are quite high here. In other words, even in Akiba's day back in the first century AD, see, he's correcting an abuse with what he's saying here. Even back in Akiba's day, there were those who settled on the erotic and suggest suggestive meanings alone. Turns into sort of, you know, bar tunes. And, and Elton, you know, slap some Elton John tunes on these and let them roll, kind of thing. And Akiba leveled a religious threat against them. So again, what what are these poems? What are they doing? Why are they in the Why are they in the Bible? Second thing about these poems: look at the imagery that's drawn from the natural world here. I mean, it's as if these poems. And, and I'll just go and tell you. And you you'll read others who say something different. And I might change my mind in two months. But where I am now, I don't think there's necessarily an order and shape to these poems. Um, now, some, some, there are some very fine-tuned readings of Song of Solomon out there that will identify different couples at different places and different choruses that come in. It gets very, very complicated. I, I'm actually not convinced that that's the case. I think we have a collection here of erotic poems, lyric poems,
And the way in which we have these poems that come to us in a kind of folio form are two lovers, young lovers, wandering the countryside, finding their love, identifying their own love in the evocative scenes of the natural world around them. So so it's like, can you just see a young couple, 21, 22, hand in hand, walking the countryside in Jasper or Silicaga or somewhere like that, and like, oh, you know, look at the pine cones there. Yeah, it's, it's a little cheesy, right? But that's what you have here. And so what are the, they're not necessarily our image, some of, some of them are. Plants and orchards, gazelles and sheep, gardens and grapes. So what they see in the natural world around them becomes a kind of evocative invitation to identify the nature of their own love in the natural world around them. Uh, so imagery here is very important in the book of Song of Solomon. And what does imagery mean? Well, imagery typically is the representation of one thing by another. So that when Robert Burns long ago wrote, Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June, that rose is an image. Burns was using imagery. If Burns had written, My love is sweet, wild, wonderful, you would really, really like her, he would be using descriptive language, but not the language of imagery. See? So imagery leaves things somewhat abstract in the world. You have to make the connections. Um, my lover's neck is like the Tower of David. Well, it's not immediately self-evident what that metaphor is actually doing. It's an invitation to make some associations with that. So what do we do with these songs? Or what do we do with the fact that we have erotic literature in the Bible? None of that in the New Testament, by the way. Right? Why is this here? The erotic character of the Psalms aren't lost on the Jewish and the Christian traditions. This, this is a challenge, frankly. Um, and the pr- predominant tradition of reading, the predominant tradition, is what we would call an allegorical tradition. This is the dominant strand of reading a Song of Solomon in both the synagogue and the Christian interpretive approach. And the prophets of the Bible, and what do I, what, let me be clear, what do I mean by allegorical? The understanding is that this erotic imagery here that's being used, this love lyric poetry, is poetry that finds itself within the, the space of young love, male, female, husband, wife, young husband and wife, looking around the sort of natural world to find various images that are there that support and indicate the kind of love that they're experiencing. And instead of reducing the reading of the Song of Solomon to its erotic character, they recognize that that character itself is indicative of something other. It's more than that. Um, This is an indication to us of what it means for God to love His people and for God's people to love Him. It's an indication of what it means for Jesus to love His church and for Jesus' church to love Him. Um, And it's using erotic imagery to do that. And by the way, that shouldn't be much of a surprise when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament. If God chooses a favorite metaphor from the realm of human experiences and institutions to demonstrate what His love is, what it means for Him to love His people and for His people to love Him, it's marriage. And if you find... The logic that Paul uses to describe marriage in Ephesians, for example, the logic is not this. There's this human institution of marriage that I'm now sort of um, sequestering. 
I'm, I'm setting it apart to be an illustration of my love for my people. That, that's not the logic. It's not one that then leads to two. It's this. I have my love for my people and my people for them. I will institute marriage as the primary means, the primary human institution that indicates to the world what it means for me to love my people in self-giving and for my people to love me in acts of self-giving. Because that's what love is at its very essence, isn't it? In the scriptures, self-giving of oneself to the other. I divest myself of my own self-interest alone, and I give myself to another. This is why, by the way, wedding vows are such a big, hairy deal. They're a big deal. I mean, think about the things you're actually saying. Um, I remind my wife regularly, for better and worse. And I'm sorry you got the latter, but you're stuck. No, I don't tell her that. Um, so, the prophets as well in the Old Testament, the prophets lend themselves to reading as an intercanonical reading and not just blushing away from the eroticism of young lovers. Now, it's not just the Song of Solomon that does this, by the way. We have the book of Hosea. Uh, that's an awkward book, but it's a book that's using the erotic character of love and infidelity in marriage to demonstrate what covenant loyalty and faithlessness looks like. The longest chapter in Ezekiel 16 is an erotic chapter. I think there are actually even some traditions within the Jewish, uh, within rabbinic Judaism, that both Song of Solomon and Ezekiel 16 were not to be read by young men until they were 30. <laughs> right? Um, so Ezekiel, and what's Ezekiel 16? It's this whole metaphor that God uses about God rescuing this ch this female child that had been abandoned, and then the child grows up to marriageable age, and then it becomes erotic. The Lord marries this, this now fully grown woman. She ends up becoming a prostitute. Sodom and Gomorrah look at what this woman is doing and blush in the face of what this what this wife... So the point is, when you look at Hosea, when you look at Ezekiel, when you look at other portions of the Bible, it's not a stretch to think of Song of Solomon as an inner canonical thing that help those, where those prophets help us understand that Song of Solomon is tapping into a metaphor that's already present in other places. This whole notion about God and His people. Um, Michael Fishbane, who's one of my favorite sort of Jewish commentators, says that these texts have been understood as religious love lyrics par excellence. In other words, the whole history of Israel becomes viewed in terms, think about this, as a love dialogue between the Lord and Israel. This is what Origen in the, in the late 2nd century says about the Song of Solomon. Blessed is he who enters holy places, but much more blessed is he who enters the holy of holies. Likewise, blessed is he who knows holy songs and sings them, but much more blessed is he who sings the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. So you have a link that's going on here, where human sexual love serves as an analog for the love between God and His people. Um, can I read to you a quote? Oh, oh, by the way, if because I may forget to say this later. If you are interested in reading what I think is probably one of the better modern commentators on Song of Solomon, now, do yourself a favor and buy Robert Jensen's little little commentary on the Song of Solomon. He's another one that's following into this pattern of systematic theologian, church dogmatician, at the end of his life, writing a commentary on Song of Solomon. I have it on my shelf. Um, I, I, refer, I, I think it's one of, the, one of the greatest things Jensen wrote. And there was a time 
when Jensen would have probably been um, understood as the best living theologian in the United States. Um, he's with the Lord now. Um, but I, I would encourage you to read uh, Robert Jensen's commentary because I think he's doing the best of sort of close reading and, and uh, just, just so and we'll talk about this a little bit more, and recognizing that this whole allegorical reading, Christ's love for the church, our love for Christ, and the analog of human sexuality, r- what it means to really be um, in an erotic relationship with another and acts of self-giving, that those don't have to be played over one another. So let me, let me not bury the lead here where we're going. I think if you go, if, at least in my reading on Song of Solomon, that most interpreters are going to force you to choose. They're going to force you to choose. It's, it's either about human sexuality, and by the way, when I was in seminary and even in college, that's how I was taught the Song of Solomon primarily in terms of human sexuality and what it means to enter into the erotic nature of, of marital love. Um, so I was taught that. Um, and Jensen is saying that's fine, but it's not limited to that. It's also this. So instead of saying either or, I think Jensen does a wonderful job showing us both and. Um, that, that the analog actually matters uh, when one thinks about human sexuality and God's relationship with his people. Um, so let, let me read this to you from Robert Jensen. I thought this was, this was really, really helpful. Perhaps, oh, and he's raising the question, what gave rise to these poems? Where did they come from? Like, were they originally written such that they were understood as religious love lyric poetry from the, from the get-go? Or did they originate as erotic literature that then in time got adopted and received in the synagogue and the church in a different way? He's raising that question about the source of the material itself. And this is what he says. Perhaps the poems were... Um, originally written uh, about the Lord and Israel. Or perhaps they became poems about the Lord and Israel when they were taken into the canon. Or perhaps they came by some now a noble other route into some pre-canonical collection and were later made to be poems about the Lord and Israel in order to justify their place in the canon. So do you see what he's saying here? Who knows? Maybe they originated as religious lyric literature. Maybe they originated as very secular literature, erotic love poetry that then got adopted into the temple or the synagogue and the church. And it's some sort of justification for why kind of embarrassing stuff like this is now in our canon. Maybe all of that's true. We don't know the genetic history of this literature itself and where it came from. But this is what it goes on to say. But for exegetical purposes or for purposes of reading the Bible... This possibility collapses into the second, in whichever of these ways the canonical entity itself, the book that we now have in the Bible, is about the love of Israel and the Lord. And to read it by construing theological allegory is to read what we may call its, and I love this phrase from Jensen, its canonical plain sense. Why is it here in the Old Testament? Why is it doing what it's doing here? And the answer is its canonical plain sense speaks of the love of Israel and the love of the Lord. It's forcing us to think in those terms. So the goal of our reading is, and I love this turn of phrase from Jensen, a canonical plain sense reading that allows the nature of the song as lyric erotic poetry to function on a theological plane. Um, And this is what Jensen goes on to say. First, it is neither narrative nor didactic. In other words, um, this is not a story. We don't we don't know about how these two people met. We don't know their we don't know their history. 
And frankly, we're probably glad we don't, because if they have their Genesis in Solomon, actually, um, I mean, gosh, you've, you've read Second uh, Kings. I don't, I don't, you know, Solomon shouldn't be writing, you know, books for our teenage boys to read on, you know, how, how to woo young women. I mean, you know, you know how it works, right? First Kings three, David loved the Lord with all of his heart. First, I mean, Second Kings three, then Second Kings eleven, David loved many foreign women, right? So, I mean, David had some issues later in life. I think is what we're trying to say. Um, so we don't we don't know. But it's not narrative. It's not didactic. We're not being taught something here. It's lyrical. It's theology intended to be perceived obliquely, savored for its images and its illusions. In other words, the point of the Song of Solomon and the the lyric poetry that you have here is not to read through it and say, now, like whiskey, I'm going to stick this this poem now through some distillation process so that I can have whatever didactic teaching nugget I I need at the end. Um, So I read the poem, da-da-da-da-da, okay, uh, love is faithful. Love is constant. Love can be rather charged. Love can be, you know, hot. I mean, whatever. It's not. It's not meant to do that. It's meant to actually bring you into the imagery itself of the poem, so that the poem does its work. The poem's not a conduit to get to something else. The poem itself is the experience. Um, this is the beauty, by the way, of art doing something for us that purely sort of you know left brain teaching strategies can't get at. Um, yeah, and I think we all know what this is like. I mean, think, think about it in terms of some of the silliness of the lyrics of music that you don't mind listening to on the radio. I mentioned Elton John earlier, but um, you know his song is in Moulin Rouge as well. You can tell everybody this is your song. Um, I hope you don't I mean, so think about that song and the lyrics. I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind how wonderful life is now that you're in the world. I mean, when you hear that read, you th- at least I think, I, you know, I could do that in my shower. I could do some, I could do a lyric like that in my shower every morning for the rest of my life. And it, it didn't require a retreat, you know, with a thesaurus and a dictionary and Shakespeare surrounding me to kind of come to terms with a great lyric poem. I mean, this is about as simple as it gets. But I put it in a tune, I sing it along, I put it in a relational context. Now, you might not feel this way now, but think of when you were 18 or 19, right? Listening to that stuff. And all of a sudden, those silly lyrics have an incredibly powerful meaning in a particular relational context. And I think that's part of what we're meant to feel reading the Song of Solomon. It's not, you know, these, it's not Shakespeare. It's, it's just the effective and, and evocative sense of what love, young love, romantic love is actually all about. Sort of the heat, the passion, the intensity of it. So, for, for my own money with the Song of Solomon, I, th- I would like to kind of move both ways. From the realm of the sexual, frankly, into the realm of the religious, and from the re- realm of the religious back into the realm of of the sexual, and I think that that's actually important um, because we need to learn language. Some of you are better at this than I am, I know, but how to speak about sexuality um, in terms of its religious dynamics—that that is not mainstream thought when it comes to human sexuality today. Um, so, can, I, can we talk about it for a second? Last night, this is us talking. My sixth grade sons. That goes to the Advent here. We were just told they're about to have the big talk, so we had to sign the parent form. And so, so Naomi, Naomi looked at me last night. She's like, 
that's coming up Tuesday. Um, so get on it, right? And uh, so last night, everyone, it just sort of worked out where Franklin and Naomi and I were kind of all together. And, and I said, Franklin, um, you know, you're having a pretty big talk on, on <laughs> you have to know my son, Franklin. He's, 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 a, he's a riot. And I could just see him kind of, he started to kind of get nervous, right? Um, and I said, well, we're going to have the talk now. So we went, I mean, I, we've talked anatomy, and we, you went to the whole dynamics, and, and you know, I said, now, and, and, and then, of course, you know, you get to the, you know, the coup de grace, and then he's, like, you know, trying to process all these things. And, um, I'll never forget when I had this conversation with my eldest son, he was like, that, you know, he was, I don't know, 12, gross, you know, like that. And I thought, and I told him, I, and I, I never forget, I grabbed him on the shoulders, and I said, son, that might seem gross to you right now, but I want you to know the day is going to come when that's going to sound really, really awesome. I just wanted to be honest with you. Whereas, like, my middle son, when we had this conversation, he was, like, all in, like, that, sign me up. You know, I could just say, like, that sounds awesome. And Franklin, last night, I mean, we had this conversation with Franklin, and funny, it's all sort of worked out at the same timing. Um, and, and I could just tell, he was like, okay, you know, I think I knew some of that, but I didn't know that, didn't know that, and so we worked through it. But we, but we talked about all the, the physical machinations of the whole thing, but we really wanted to get to the bigger thing, to say, listen, Franklin and Jackson and William, um, no, most of your friends are not going to talk about sexuality this way. They're not going to think of human sexuality as tapping into the transcendent. They're not going to think of human sexuality as something that's not just bodies engaged in some physically pleasurable activity. Um, they're going to think about, and this is so common today, you think of this, especially like the hookup culture in various college campuses, it's so common. People are detaching themselves from their bodies. I'm, I'm not my body. My body is the thing that I do for pleasure, but that's not who I am. I'm not wrapped up in, in all of that. Um, I, I commend a book to you all by Nancy Percy. Uh, a female Catholic moral theologian. She wrote a book called Love Thy Body. I think it's one of the best. Have you seen this? I think it's one of the best books that I've read as a parent on human sexuality. It talks about transgender issues as well, um, gender dysphoria. So she goes into all of the kind of issues that we're wrestling with in our modern moment and thinks about it in terms of a Christian slash, and then when I say Catholic, lower C, lowercase c Catholic, understanding of the body. I was listening to an interview that Rusty Reno did several years back with a priest up in New York City, and he said, it's an amazing thing, you know, I talk about human, the priest said, I talk about human sexuality with Christians all the time, and I really, and, and they know that I, I'm not into that world, um, but he says, I know a lot about human sexuality, even though I'm not practicing it. And he said something in passing that I found so fascinating. He said, I'm convinced that so many people are involved in unfettered sexual activity because they are hungry for the transcendent. And they know that in that moment, something's happening that goes beyond the physical realm, and they get to peer into it. But unfortunately, the damage done on the far side continues to deteriorate the very character of their souls. And so this is, this is what I think is so beautiful about a book like the Song of Solomon that doesn't force me to think about human sexuality on one side and the love of God on another, but see those, those two aspects of our human identity necessarily fitted to one to another. That's what we tried to communicate even last night to Franklin. Franklin, listen, human sexuality, it's a beautiful and wonderful gift. It's an amazing gift that God gives to humans. It's an amazing gift. But outside the context of which God has shaped that gift to humanity, outside of that context, few things can be as destructive to the souls of young men and young women. 
and, and, and think about this sort of analog that's going on here even in the book of Song of Solomon. My love of God and my experience of human sexuality, they're all wrapped up in one another. Can't, I, can't, I can't dissect the one from the other. They're wrapped up in one another. My body and my soul are linked in such a way, and this is a powerful New Testament theme, that I can't speak about my soul in absence from my body. We're very dualistic, and I don't know if this is a, maybe a part of our revivalistic past or a certain pietistic background, but even in the sort of evangelical world of my own upbringing, we can tend to be dualistic when it comes to the relationship of our souls and our bodies. In fact, I think you'll still find many like Bible-believing, conservative, Orthodox Christians who think that the goal of, of, our, of our future life with, with God is escaping our bodies. I can't wait to get away from this thing. So I can be away from my body and be you know, a bodiless spirit or soul with God forever. And, I, and, and I, I think I understand that, but my question is, what Bible are we reading? That, that is not the way in which the Bible presents the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible presents the new heavens and the new earth, and by the way, this intermediary time, when those that we love are with Jesus, are without their bodies, in spiritual communion with Jesus. So beautiful to think about it. But even in this moment, they are awaiting the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Um, so our bodies and our souls are meant to be linked to one another. The scriptures don't understand um, soulless bodies or bodiless souls. We are raised, think about Paul's language, we are raised with spiritual bodies. Not a fascinating phrase. And I think if left to our own devices, we think spiritual bodies must mean, I don't know, ghost or something. Jacob Marley, you know, in the Christmas Carol. I don't know what a spiritual body. A spiritual body is a body. A dimensioned body animated fully and completely by the Holy Spirit, which makes the new heavens and the new earth so inviting, right? So inviting. Our bodies and our souls raised to not become gods, but to become really human, human at its fullest. And if you don't think that matters to God, just remember that God became a man. Humanity really matters to the very life of God Himself. And isn't it interesting that here, in the book of Song of Solomon, with its erotically charged language, that God is leaning into that very dynamic. That our bodies and our souls, the erotic character of our existence and the religious character of our existence, they fuel and they feed one another. They're linked to one another. So that human sexuality and marriage is not an end unto itself but as a means to the enjoyment and the pleasure of God Himself. It's, this, it's, it's, it's a remarkable thing to think about in those terms. Now, um, well, that's great. I blew all of our time. Um, some see, oh, I wanted to say more here, but I'll, I'll leave it. Some see possibly chapter 8, verses 6 through 7 as the climax of the Song of Solomon. And I'll just go ahead and read it. And we'll, let our, and we'll go after this, or we'll take some questions. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. So did you get the language there? That's like a signet that's set on you. Like, like the, like the um, tefillim that you'd wrap around your arm or around your head that would have the Ten Commandments in it or the, or the Shema. Seal me upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your arm. 
For love is as strong as death. Isn't that amazing? Jealousy, or and that term, I, I wish it was different. Z- how about zealous? It's as fierce as the grave. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love, isn't this amazing? All the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. If a man says, I'll give up everything I've got for real love, um, he, it, no one's going to make that trade with him. I'm not going to give you, you can give me everything I have, but I'm not, if I have real love, I'm not, I'm not making that trade. Waters cannot quench love. Floods cannot drown it. And what I find so, I think, sort of powerful about this is we recognize on the analog from human sexuality, from human love, marital love, to God's love for His people, we recognize that the analogies break down. I mean, come on, let's be, let's be candid. How, how many of us live, you know, Monday to Sunday in Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 through 7 with our spouses? I mean, you know, if I, it's just, it's not sustainable in a way, right? I mean, it's like, you can, those moments come, but we, we recognize what marriage, what marriage is like. This is even what Kierkegaard talks about, where you move from sort of juvenile romantic love, the kind of hot and heavy stuff, to the stability of mature marital love, which sees it over the long haul. And the beauty, I think, of mature marital love is, you know, hopefully those embers of passion and whatever can ignite here or there. But a lot of it is just, you know, at least in my world, getting the kids to school. And uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not rushing out the door on Monday morning to get one son to school and she's the other one. And I'm like, hot passion for you. I, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's like, see ya. You know, kiss on the chicken on the way out the door. But, it's, but there's, there is this sort of volcanic reality, isn't it? That's present, even in the... And yet God's love for us, it's constant. See, that's, what, that, that's where the, the analogy for our love, we, we see it in glimpses. And we're repenting toward it regularly. And this is why I read a great book with um, my students last semester, Gilbert Mylander's little book, Thy Will Be Done, which is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. I commend it to everybody. I think it's an outstanding book. Mylander's section on marriage is worth the whole book because he says something about the nature of what marital vows really require. And you know what they require? Time. Lots and lots of time. Um, And that's the beauty of it. You have a lot of time to live into the complexities and the beauty and the difficulty and the promise of your vows. And it needs a lot of time. I mean, Naomi and I, we chuckle about it. And we celebrated 21 years on Friday. We chuckle about it now, but like our first two years, she wouldn't like this if she were here, but she's not here, so I'll say it. Um, our first two years, not great. Not great. I mean, we, we, we entered into it, both of us, extremely naive with a lot of expectations that we thought. And, and, and now here we are, 21, a lot of time is needed for things to kind of get sorted out, worked out, you know, the beauty of those sort of things. And yet with God, God doesn't need time to be constant in his affection toward us. He's always Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7 to you and me. Isn't that amazing? He's always that. With one cast of his glance, it ignites the very embers of our being. That's who God is. 
we know what it's like to kind of go up and down, up and down in the inconstancies of our very being. Think about Montagnier's you know, classic essay, The Inconstancy of Man. I mean, you'll find one guy one day who's ready to die on the battlefield. Like, what a courageous man. Three days later, he's hiding in his tent. Montagnier's like, why in the world is that happening? Because we're inconstant, right? We're inconstant, and we all know that we are. But God is not. That's the beauty of Song of Solomon. Because what we have here, I think, in Song of Solomon is a portrayal of our ideal relationship with the person that we love. And I think there are moments when we all, by God's grace, live into it. And we know there are lots of moments when we don't. But God lives into, He brings the ideal and the real together eternally in His affection for us. And that's why with God and us in Jesus Christ, it's always Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 through 7. Okay? So Lord Jesus, bless these friends as they go their way. Lord, thank you for a book like Song of Solomon. It is, I mean, I, I've shied away from it for a long time because I just don't know what to do with it. Um, and, and here, Lord, just so many lessons to be learned from the church and from entering into something that's sacred. And, and all of us, Lord, who have been in relationships know what the sort of dynamism that's at play um, in these relationships that you give us. And so, Lord, thank you for those. And Lord, for those who, you know, the human relationship now is broken or it ended, or, Lord, let us, let, let us lean hard into the fact that your love for us is constant, true. You're always Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7 for us. Always that in Jesus. And let that fill our hearts with joy and anticipation of that day when our souls and our bodies will be one in the new heavens and the new earth and we will live into the fullness of the love that you have demonstrated for us in your Son. And we give these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.